0: Freebies, are you being replaced? In this week's special episode, we're spending the entire program explaining what is happening at the southern border. Why are there massive amounts of people suddenly coming to the United States from all over Central America or Latin America? Is this completely random or is there some sort of evil force or motivation behind it? Well, buckle up because this is going to be a wild ride through scholarship, geopolitics, and what the Bible has to say. I'm Blake Watson, and this is We The Free. As a Christian, there's nothing wrong. In fact, there's everything good about swearing allegiance to the American flag. Now, why is that? because of the virtues for which the flag flies. It speaks to our providential founding and has been for nearly 200 years a symbol of freedom to those who seek it. You can fly the American flag with pride from your front porch or out in the front yard, and you can even hang one on the wall in the house or the garage, the office, or wherever you wish. I recommend getting a flag that will last and that will withstand the weather throughout the seasonal changes of the year. So check out the supplies at Allegiance Flags. Check the link in the show notes or head over to wethefreeshow.com for more. Military and first responders get 10% off all orders. Before there was any mention of critical race theory in the weekly news cycle a couple of years ago and before Ron DeSantis was booting its teaching from the classroom, And before there was any attempt to rewrite our nation's history with the 1619 Project, there was CRT's parent ideology, Critical Theory, which was founded as far back as the 1930s by a group of academic Marxists in Frankfurt, Germany. In fact, Critical Theory just built upon the ideas founded by Karl Marx, who was, no doubt, one of the most, if not the most, evil philosophers to ever exist. The man was evil and putrid, satanic and miserable, and the social system he engineered gave birth to genocidal regimes throughout history, leading to the deaths of literally hundreds of millions of innocent people, like people in Soviet Russia, Mao's China, Cambodia, Cuba, Romania, Ukraine, just to name a few, and let's not forget European Jews at the hands of the Nazis. Marx, who I believe was surely possessed by the devil himself, essentially fathered communism, which is very simply explained as the iron-fisted version of socialism. There were several tenets to Marxism, but one of the main ideas expressed in this evil ideology was this idea of the caste system. I'm not saying that doesn't exist, but he's arguing that there are only two classes, the rulers and the ruled. Now, Marx referred to those two classes as the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. His prescription to creating a single class and creating this unfettered utopia was that the proletariat class, those that are ruled, should overthrow the bourgeoisie. This right here, this is the basis of critical theory. Yuri Harris at Kiet magazine says... Critical theory draws heavily on Karl Marx's notion of ideology. Because the bourgeoisie controlled the means of production, Marx suggested they controlled the culture. Consequently, the laws, beliefs, and morality of society reflected the interests of the bourgeoisie. And importantly, people were unaware this was the case. The founders of critical theory developed this notion. Harris says these founders believed when people saw things as they really were, they would liberate themselves. So he's saying that critical theory was produced to open the eyes of the proletariat, and when they've come to this revelation, um, Marx's dream is fulfilled as they attempt to liberate themselves or overthrow the ruling class. Harris continues, theory, they suggested, always serves the interest Of certain people here's the two things traditional theory because it is uncritical towards power automatically serves the powerful while critical theory because it unmasks these interests serves the powerless all theory is political they said and by choosing critical theory over traditional theory one chooses to challenge the status quo in accordance with marx's famous uh, statement philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. Now, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy defines critical theory as something that's not only specific to philosophy, but also to social sciences. It says a critical theory may be distinguished from a traditional theory according to specific practical purpose. A theory is critical to the extent that it seeks Human emancipation from slavery acts as a, a liberating influence and works to create a world which satisfies the needs and powers of human beings. Because such theories aim to explain and transform all the circumstances that enslave human beings, many critical theories in the broader sense have been developed. They have emerged in connection with the many social movements that identify varied dimensions of the domination of human beings in modern societies. Everything that I've just mentioned, from Marxism to the bifurcation of society, from the also-German-born critical theory to just downright evilness, has all blended together like a toxic milkshake to create a festering cup of destruction known as the modern iterations of critical theory. I've already mentioned one of these critical race theory. In short, it's the academic version of racism against what they call Anglo-Americans, also known as white people. Because in the spirit of Marx, white people are the American version of bourgeoisie, while blacks or people of color, since their arrival in the United States, have been the oppressed proletariat. Therefore, it follows that in order to create a classless society in American society, we must overthrow white people. This is what has given scholarly credence to institutional racism against white people, violence against white people, discrimination against white people in, in college applications, and job applications and in internships. And it has solidified in the minds of countless people of color this idea. That people of pale complexion possess an an innate hatred of them. They oppose them. They, They seek to suppress and oppress them. It's what has given way for relentless DEI initiatives and the cancer of equity. It's given the race hustlers like Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi, who's actually not doing so well these days, and the entire organization of Black Lives Matter some faux-textual basis for the game they play. In fact, while I'm on the subject, the founders of Black Lives Matter were outspoken and avowed Marxists. And on the organization's website, these are the things they express as beliefs for the organization. Pay very close attention to this list of things. We are guided by the fact that all black lives matter, regardless of actual or perceived sexual identity, gender identity, gender expression, economic status, ability, disability, religious beliefs or disbeliefs, immigration status or location. We make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. In this first paragraph, you're starting to get a sense of something called intersectionality. This is a convergence of cultural minority movements. So in this first paragraph, you can see racial minority, sexual minority, religious minority, and more, which we'll talk about in a moment. We are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women, who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. Now, when you hear a line like that, your natural reaction is to think, how are black men who think they're women facing violence? But you have to understand that liberals view any opposition as violence. You could never lift a finger, but if you oppose them, silently non-supportive or verbally Protestant, you're, you're being violent towards them. We build a space that affirms black women and is free from sexism, misogyny, and environments in which men are centered. All right, so if you're keeping a running total, I think we're seeing a conglomeration of something like 40 minority movements all at once here. But because here we have this addition of of feminism. Now, pay attention to a certain word that they say next. We practice empathy. We engage comrades with the intent to learn about and connect with their contexts, The key word there is comrades, which, yes, could mean just a close group of friends, but historically, it was used, that word was used to refer to your fellow communists. They also say, We make our spaces family friendly and enable parents to fully participate with their children. We dismantle the patriarchal practice that requires mothers to work double shifts so they can mother in private even as they participate in public justice work. While I don't have the time to do a full analysis of the Marxism of Black Lives Matter, this is one of the core ideas from Marx, which you'll see bluntly expressed in the next paragraph, but the idea here is that everyone, even, for example, a mother of two little babies, can be mobilized into social activism. This next paragraph is, is truly Marxism unmasked. They say, "...we disrupt the Western-prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and, quote, villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable." Now, there's two things here. Marx and Engels sought to abolish the family, or the nuclear family, because the family is the backbone of society. But remember, society must be overturned and re-established as a classless utopia in which, as BLM seeks to accomplish, there is a community in which everyone provides for each other. You won't need a family, because we'll all be one big happy family. Now, Many have suggested that the Bible somehow advocates uh, communalism or communism or socialism or a system of sharing and providence as described at, towards the end of Acts chapter 4, but two things debunk that. First of all, this system of sharing everything and knowing, no one having their own possessions came to a, a fairly quick ending as soon as the, the magic began to wear off and the Sanhedrin began killing off Christians. And and secondly, this was describing a time when the Christian church was first born and and everyone was in Jerusalem for Passover, i.e. not at their homes. And I could also add that the rest of Scripture makes a pretty compelling case for free market capitalism, but that's a conversation for another day. Getting back to the BLM statements, however, they also add, We foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexual unless she, he, or they disclose otherwise. We cultivate an intergenerational and communal network free of ageism. We believe that all people, regardless of age, show up with the capacity to lead and learn. We embody and practice justice, liberation, and peace in our engagements with one one another. All right, so you can clearly see from all of those things that Black Lives Matter is, is not simply led by Marxists, but it is, in fact, the, the public organiza- organizational front of the critical race theory movement. However, there is a great deal of intersectionality there, where, where this, org- this organization, which is supposed to be chiefly concerned with the plight of blacks in America, dabbles into the oppression and injustice of several other minority groups. And you can tell just from those few paragraphs that basically anyone other than white men are those they wish to champion. And once again, in the spirit of Marx, Black Lives Matter, the public front for critical race theorists, seeks to pit black and brown people against white people. In order to destroy societal norms and institutions. And how many so-called Christians blindly supported this new racism? Do you remember the black squares three years ago? Do you remember the numerous cities who painted the BLM insignia on their streets? Do you remember the bizarre videos of white people or police officers bowing down to Blacks for no reason other than white guilt and white fragility? Stick with me. I'm telling you all of this for a reason. Don't check out just yet. Have you noticed that this sort of language has just... largely disappeared? You don't hear media outlets promoting this, this nomenclature, this verbiage, and you don't even hear them promoting Black Lives Matter. Now, why is that? Well, one reason is because it pointed people like me directly to the scholarship and the intellectuals who crafted all of this nonsense. But TIME also proved groups like BLM to be frauds. They took more advantage of black people during the last three years than any white person has. But there's another reason why you don't hear much about this anymore. Another offspring of critical theory, and another critical theory which BLM alludes to on their mission statements, is Latino Critical Theory, which has been shortened to LATCRIT. Lindsay Perez Huber from UCLA explains that LATCRIT involves experiences unique to the Latina or Latino community, such as immigration, status, language, ethnicity, and culture. Latcrit is a lens that highlights the conceptual framework of racism and nativism. Now pay really close attention to this. Huber defines racist nativism as the assigning of values to real and imagined differences in order to justify the superiority of the native, who is perceived to be white, over that of the non-native who is perceived to be people and immigrants of color, and thereby defend the natives' right to dominance. Huber prefaced this by saying, Beliefs in white superiority and historical amnesia have erased the histories of the indigenous communities that occupied the United States prior to the first white European settlers. Whites have been historically and legally deemed the native Founding Fathers of the United States. Now, the father of crit is believed to be Rodolfo Acuna, who is described as the first scholar to reformulate American history, to take account of U.S. colonization of land formerly held by Mexico, and how this colonization affected Mexicans living in those territories. That means that Latcrit suggests the indigenous Latin inhabitants of this mass of the North American continent are the true natives, and I suppose you could amalgamate uh, American Indians into this group as well, by and large, because there, there's you know much Latin ancestry in a number of of Indian tribes. But this is what Acuna expressed in his book *Occupied America*. All the way back in 1972, he said. Mexicans, Chicanos—that's those are uh, Americans of Mexican descent—in the United States today are an oppressed people. That sounds a lot like Karl Marx. They are citizens, but their citizenship is second class at best. They are exploited and manipulated by those with more power, and by that, of course, he means white people. And sadly. Many believe the only way to get along in Anglo-America, and that means white people, is to become Americanized themselves. Yeah, we used to call that assimilation, and it was something that we used to value fairly greatly in our society because it was unifying. In actuality, assimilation meant learning how to fit into the American culture. Here's how our society works here if you want to thrive and survive. The national language is English, so if you want to speak to an overwhelming majority of the nation, you'll have to assimilate into our language. Americans also show a great deal of national pride, so while you can absolutely honor your ancestral or religious customs and traditions, if this is going to be your new home, we want you to have the most honor and the most pride for this nation and this place and this land. But, of course, to people who propagate and perpetuate critical theories, assimilation is an abomination. But here again, in the spirit of Marx and the spirit of the, the Frankfurt School and the spirit of Herbert Marcuse and Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi and Patrice Cullors, etc., Acuna says, Awareness of their history can help them to liberate themselves. Oppressed versus the oppressor. Intentional division to beget derision. Professors, Ricardo Castro Salazar and Carl Bagley, they refer to white people as United Statesian, and they formulate that the truer Americans include people from Central America, and South America, and even Canada. They say, Undocumented Americans of Mexican origin have a double American identity, United Statesian and Mexican, and possess a stronger historical connection with the American continent than the majority population in the United States. So this means that LACRIT promotes the idea that those who enter this country illegally, what we used to call illegal aliens, are more American than any white person here. They shouldn't have to assimilate into white culture or become a United Statesian because this land is rightfully theirs. It belongs to them. Therefore, their entrance, no matter the legal process, is irrelevant because this land is your land, But it's not my land, from California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you, not me. Now, Gallup conducted a a poll a couple of years ago in Central American countries asking if they would like to move to another country permanently. 27% of the 450 million plus Central Americans said yes. So that's 120 million people. Gallup then asked them where they would like to move, to which 35% of them said to the United States. Now that means that according to Gallup, somewhere around 42 million, 42 million Latin Americans want to come to the United States. That means, according to the most recent census data, if there was this immigration of 42 million Central Americans to the United States, Hispanic or Latino Americans, if legal, would constitute almost 30% of the US population, while white people would compose just over 50% of the population. Now, many conservatives in media and politics have been labeled racist, of course, by by the modern racists, by suggesting, as Mark Levin said, the Democrat Party hopes to benefit from embracing the movement, meaning lat-crit, as it counts on wave after wave of illegal aliens and subsequent grants of amnesty as one of the ways in which it seeks to hold hold. Uh, seeks a permanent hold on power. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but as we speak, thousands of people are coming over the border. And at this point, after years of hundreds of thousands, millions, uh, coming through illegally, it's not as if they're really sneaking in anymore. They're just coming through. They're hardly being processed. (laughs) They're not being turned away. And no one is being really rejected or deported. And the overwhelming majority of these people are being admitted without the standard process of immigration. And as President Trump leaned heavily against, this mass of people is giving cover to all sorts of evil. Human trafficking, uh, drug trafficking, and other criminal activity. Not to mention the exploitation of this immigration system or this, this mass migration Uh, by international terrorists. Lindsey Graham told Newsmax last week that the Biden administration was offering work permits to almost half a million Venezuelans currently living in the United States, that it will cause another million to come. He also said, we have completely lost control of the southern border, and how smart do you have to be to figure out what will happen next if you give 470,000 Venezuelans work permits? You're going to get another million to come. People will be attracted by that move. He went on to say, in the supplemental sent to Congress to help with uh, emergencies, you know what the Biden administration did on border security? They defunded ICE, the enforcement part of immigration. They took money from ICE, and we're going to put it into community shelters, which means more space for illegal immigrants. Graham said that the Biden administration has done everything but take out an ad all over the world. He added, these people are either incompetent or they're doing it on purpose. And I think they're doing it on purpose. Now, I believe he's right. From 2016 to 2020, President Trump probably did more than any president in recent history, if not more than any president ever, to fortify fortify, uh, border security to prevent as much illegal entrance to the United States as possible, even occasionally instituting travel bans from hostile nations and locations of civil unrest. Trump's administration drastically reduced unlawful migrations and created several executive orders to see those measures fulfilled. However, as soon as President Biden stepped into the Oval Office, he signed Five executive orders on day one, essentially undoing all uh, that Trump's administration had done in this respect. He ended uh, border wall construction, he ended Trump's interior enforcement policies, he stopped deportations, and he proposed amnesty for those living here illegally. Now, for the record, and this is just a side note, I'm not a fan of executive orders regardless of who's in office because it's simply unconstitutional. The president has zero legal authority to make decrees from the Oval Office as pretend legislation. We have an entire branch of our government committed to that. Therefore, when a president issues their edicts, which are called executive orders, they're bypassing the legislative body unconstitutionally. However, the point here is that it seems very clear to me that the Biden admin wants this to happen. The Post Millennial reported on Monday this week, the Biden administration is moving forward with its plan to provide identification cards to illegal immigrants via Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. The agency announced the ICE Secure Docket Card Program in 2022. However, new details recently emerged revealing how the cards will look. Images obtained by Fox News show that the cards will be clearly marked with ICE logos and include all the relevant information about the holder. In the top right corner there will be a QR code which officials can scan to gain access to a case file. The cards will also include biographic data and be fitted with cutting-edge security features. In appearance, they look like driver's licenses or non-driver IDs. ICE has stressed, however, that they will not be an official form of federal identification, simply acting as a more modern alternative to the paper documents issued to those who make the crossing into the United States. Many Democrat-run cities have also offered ID cards to illegal immigrants, and some cities have even tried to push through the ability for illegal immigrants to vote. Now hold on there, that is what Levin theorized, it's what Latcrit formulated and it's what Marx advocated. The evidence seems to clearly support this mass illegal migration of hundreds of thousands and millions of illegal immigrants are are intent upon completely altering the electorate. It's almost as if they wish to not only replace the, the Caucasian population, but They want to replace the white voter. It's as if there's this cabal of academics and politicians and media members and and deep-pocketed Marxists and globalists all working together to subvert and overthrow the American white devil. If only there was some sort of nomenclature we could use to describe this whole process of national and electoral replacement, you know, some name for this theory. How about um, the theory of replacement? Oh no, that's that's not catchy enough. Um, I tell you what, let's just let's just shorten it to replacement theory. Now, there's no need for you to search replacement theory online, and, and I would strongly advise against it because you'll only find accusations of racism and white supremacy as dismissals of this theory and the demonization of those who mention it. But I've just clearly made the case that replacement theory is, is just the name that conservatives have come up with to explain the lat crit movement. In, in other words, liberals in academia concocted the whole idea, flowing all the way down from Karl Marx, and replacement theory is, is only the conservative explanation of the division and destructive ideology that liberals have espoused. And, and this is just typical of liberals to project onto others what what they, in fact, have done, or do, or believe. But, I have two questions for our subject today. Number one, will this work, or will it backfire? And secondly, what should be the Christian position on this issue? To the first question, I'm perplexed by this theory in the sense that that we are discussing people who have largely traveled from countries that have long suffered from socialistic or communistic tyranny. I've been there. I I have experienced these places firsthand. These people, by and large, live in poverty poverty because the governing authorities have been authoritarians or, or, like in Cuba, totalitarians. For decades and decades, there have been generations of Latin Americans or Africans who have suffered under these systems, so there's no doubt that the move to the United States is favorable because they know that America is the land of opportunity and and the land of prosperity, but they surely have no idea how insanely liberal these Democrats are. Many of them are fleeing violence and oppression. But they're coming to a place where Democrats are progressively creating a culture of tension and rising crime and rising violence and racism. They're leaving places that are largely devoid of liberty and law and order, and they're unwittingly coming to a place which is increasingly devoid of the same things. All of the simple logic and understanding of just geopolitics leads me to believe that this will backfire massively against the the Democrats. However, I also acknowledge that many of these living in the states unlawfully, without any intention to exist here lawfully, will seek to continue to do so, to to mooch off the system without any assimilation or or contribution to society. So then the, the question becomes, how many of these migrants are the former and how many are the latter and that leads us into the second question which is what are we as christians to believe on this subject well first of all r- regardless of what any person has done in their past or even what their ancestors did or had done to them or where you lived or or where they lived etc every person is to be treated equally. Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 that you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. He says, so there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The point here is that our ethnicity and our ancestry has nothing to do with our unification in Jesus. In Genesis, we're shown that all people everywhere of, of all time are made in the image of God. Deuteronomy ten seventeen and Acts ten, thirty-four through thirty-five show us that God shows no partiality. In Romans chapter ten, verses twelve to thirteen, the apostle Paul says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, this shows us that God sees every person equally, regardless of the heritage or or nationality, because those things are irrelevant, eternally speaking. In Revelation chapter 5, We're shown this scene of of heavenly worship where Jesus is being worshiped and, and the worshipers are singing this, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This makes it abundantly clear that a person cannot exist as both a Christian and a racist. That requires being in opposition to critical theories, like critical race theory, and critical gender theory, and Latino critical theory, and all of the modern racism we see happening today. But there's another crucial thing that Christians must oppose, and that is simply lawlessness. We've covered this on the program, but you're already seeing the manifestations of lawlessness all over our society. But one example is the one we've discussed today. There are high volumes of people that are residing in the United States unlawfully. I'm not talking about those that are living here under under legal processes, but are not yet citizens of the United States. Those people aren't breaking any laws, but Latcrit is opening up the floodgates and literally the southern border for all sorts of illegality and evil, which... Again, the Christian must oppose simply on the basis of being subject to two authorities, the United States Constitution and the Word of God. And with these two things in mind, the Christian view of racism and the respect for laws and orders and submission to authority, let's look at what the Bible says about immigrants or what is commonly described as foreigners. Moses says something similar to this, um, several times in the first five books of the Bible, but this is Exodus 23:9, which says, "You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you were, you also were strangers in the land of Egypt." The context here is that Moses is speaking to the Israelites who once desired the land that God had long since promised to them. But for a time, they were held captive and held in the bondage of slavery in the land of Egypt, who at the time was the global superpower, economically and philosophically. So, for the Israelites, Egypt was not their real home. They didn't even want to be there. And eventually, they were freed. They knew exactly what it felt like to be oppressed in a foreign land. I mean, they were literally slaves to the Egyptians. So, Moses is reminding them of this feeling of criminal treatment they received, and and he's encouraging them to not treat foreigners in their midst that same way. In other words, don't treat the stranger or the foreigner or the visitor or the, the migrant unjustly. Don't treat them like you were treated. The difference in our situation are those masses of people who want to be here They want to be here, but unjustly seek to take advantage of our American amenities, which is, quite frankly, unfair to the millions of immigrants who did things the right way. The the just and right reaction to those strangers is to punish their unlawfulness. On the other hand, the correct response for the remainder of those who are trying to go through the proper channels and processes, they should be rewarded for their justness and and welcomed into our country with open arms. The the serious problem that LATCRIT is causing, which affects four groups, Americans, uh, lawful immigrants, unlawful immigrants, and their countries of origin, is the humanitarian crisis at these, these processing centers and shelters and, and other places, but we cannot possibly handle the relentless hordes of people. I mean, WOLA reports this just from this last week. Arrivals of migrants, mostly asylum seekers, at the U.S.-Mexico border rose to about 8,000 per day this week, a level last seen in April 2023, as shelters fill and Border Patrol Uh, begins releasing processed migrants on border cities' uh, streets, shelters and migrant routes are similarly full throughout Mexico. Nearly 82,000 people migrated in August through the treacherous Darien Gap jungle region straddling uh, Colombia and Panama. During the first eight months of 2023, over 330,000 people have taken this once impenetrable route. The real question that I haven't heard anyone ask is why did these massive movements of people from Central American countries to the United States begin while President Trump was in office? I mean, we've always had a steady flow of of immigration, but why was there this sudden explosion of southern border immigration? Why do, why do we now see an, an endless train of migrant caravans? I spoke to a friend this week who is a resident of the United States. She's not a citizen of the United States yet. She will likely complete that process soon, but she's lived here most of her life under the DACA program. That was a program established under, the, under President Obama, which essentially created a pathway to citizenship for the children of illegal immigrants, along with them having good behavior and education and character references, etc. Anyway, I asked her what the legal process was for entrance to the country and for citizenship, but I also asked her thoughts on this current situation. How do, how do most Latin Americans come to the United States? Why do they want to come to the United States? And, and why do we suddenly have extreme volumes of people in recent years? The legal pathway to citizenship is very difficult and very expensive. It begins with something like financial proof that you don't need the United States to survive. In other words, you have to have enough value and assets to sustain yourself if you're allowed admittance. If you don't, it's a no. If yes, then you've got to have a visa, which I'll talk more about in a moment, but this is only the beginning of an extensive process. First, you become a resident, which is somebody that lives here, but that isn't a legal citizen. Every two to three years, you have to renew your visa or your DACA status, which, by the way, DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. That basically means that we're not going to Deport you in this period of two years unless you don't meet the standards and guidelines. So, it's it's like a visa with an expiration date, but it can be promptly terminated. Now, these people are also referred to as dreamers. Anyways, the cost of this renewal is about $1,500. So, every two years, that's how much one has to pay in order to remain in the United States then after you've been a resident for at least five years, you may apply then for citizenship. Now, all of this is a complicated legal process that requires the help of independent attorneys. This, my friend tells me, over the span of a decade, plus all of the other temporary processes, ends up costing somebody, like my friend, around twenty-five dollars to $30,000 just to become a United States citizen. And just to be clear this isn't money that's paid to the united states government this is like lawyer fees etc the united states only makes something like 700 in in the application process so she says becoming a citizen is difficult and expensive so just keep that in mind you can expedite the process if you marry a united states citizen but then you still have to be married after five years or or something Uh, that way i guess uh, prevents people from marrying just for the sake of becoming a legal citizen Um, having family here legally helps as well in addition to obtaining work or education visas a migrant can also seek asylum in the united states which you heard earlier now in my surveying i found uh, one person one story again from a friend who knows a, uh, a Colombian immigrant who came to the states through that process because the drug cartel there wanted him dead. Now, I don't know how you prove that, but that's what happens in many of these legal circumstances for asylum. And when I asked for the reason that so many want to come to the United States, I wasn't surprised by her answer. She said they come for money, they come for the lifestyles they see depicted on TV and movies that they, they think they can have if they come to the United States, and they come to escape the violence in their place of origin. When I asked for an explanation of why so many people are coming right now versus the, the standard rate of the past, the answer was really interesting. She believes that there's an unknown group of people, misleading people in mass, to come to the United States right now what she said. They're saying that you have to come right now in order to get in. You have to come right now. She pointed out that somebody has to be guiding these people and giving them directions and telling them what to do and and even (laughs) paying guides to get them there. She believes uh, the vast majority of those coming through the southern border are not legal entrances, that most people are just sneaking in through other vulnerable places Again, this is I'm, I'm, I'm getting I'm quoting all of this from a, a Mexican American, but the the minority at the, the legal border crossings the legal border crossings have car lines that are a mile long. She said. Now, when you consider both the costs and the complexity and the time of becoming a legal citizen and the ever dissipating and ever debated DACA status, the majority of these migrants would just simply prefer to sneak in and avoid both of those options. It costs too much and it's too risky in their eyes. So, when I asked her to give a summary of the citizenship process, she said it's very difficult and very expensive. It's not fast enough. And she also said she was just blessed with a good lawyer in all this. She says the situation at the border is unfortunate and that border patrol is completely overwhelmed but she notes that there's some mysterious force behind this mass migration taking place. Now, I don't know who it is either, but I know what animates them. I know the political philosophy they espouse, and now so do you. I think it's ironic that it catapulted when Trump stepped into office. I don't know if it will help or hurt the Democrats because I don't know how many tens of millions of undocumented illegal aliens we have living here. I don't know what the government should do other than making things more difficult for criminals and making it easier for good people who want to come who, who want to be become Americans. I also know that Christians should oppose every form of racism. We should stand for law and order, and justice, and we should welcome those pursuing true Americanism, those that are espousing our values, once again, with open and loving arms. Well, that's going to do it for me. What will it be next time? We'll see. For now, go and be the salt and light you were meant to be, and we'll see you next time on We The Free.